0: Hello and welcome to episode three of Policy Pod. In this episode, we speak to Dr Ganeshan Vignaraja Raja from the LKI think tank in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Ganeshan is visiting the University of Southampton today to meet with researchers from Economics, Politics and International Relations and our Institute for Maritime Law. It's the first visit from a fellow at LKI to campus and we look forward to expanding the relationship over the coming weeks, months and years. In the spirit of trying a new format with each of these pods, in this episode, Ganesh and I will speak a little around his career, uh, how it is that he came to al Kai and uh, what it is that he's doing at Southampton. And then we're going to dive straight into the lecture that he delivered with staff and students here at Southampton. So without further ado, over to Ganesh.
1: Good morning, and I'm really happy to be here at Southampton on a wonderfully sunny day. Um, And I am essentially an economist, and I have worked over the last... 25 or so years in a variety of settings, both in the UK and in Asia, as well as in Africa. And I started my career, I guess, in uh, academia. I did a doctorate in economics from Oxford University, uh, looking at uh, international trade of Sri Lanka. And I then went on to work at the Commonwealth Secretariat, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I also have spent uh, some years in the consulting sector in London uh, working in international development and finally I ended up in uh, the Asian Development Bank uh, in Manila as well as in Tokyo for some 15 odd years. Now I moved back to Sri Lanka uh, where I was born and I work for a think tank called the Lakshman Kadir Gama Institute of International Relations and Strategic Studies. And we are basically Sri Lanka's premier foreign policy think-tank. I run their global economics program. And our institute essentially tries to look at what are some of the foreign policy challenges facing a country like Sri Lanka, which is strategically located in the Indian Ocean. And we are looked at by the great powers, India and China on the one hand, but we also have traditional linkages with the United Kingdom. Uh, which will perhaps grow after Brexit, but also with Europe and the United States. Um, and we are trying to adopt a non-aligned foreign policy stance, which means friends with everyone, enemies with no one. Um, and the work is, is research, uh, we do policy advocacy, uh, we help uh, government uh, with thinking through some of the issues, we also try to understand the business perspective and we try to bring the best of the world um, into Sri Lanka including um, some wonderful minds in Southampton uh, that you have and the purpose of my visit today uh, is really to try to explore links between uh, the institute in Sri Lanka and Southampton University and one of the things I notice is you have a a marvellous campus firstly in uh, Southampton and it's my first visit here and it's on this wonderfully sunny day uh, and one is uh, stunned by the a um, wonderful mix of ancient and modern buildings that you have here, but also with the wonderful minds of people. I, I've met people um, in, in many fields today. Uh, I've talked to people from economics, and I, I, I must say I was impressed with the uh, depth of the economic historians that you have here, but also the people working on empirical economics such as international trade. Uh, and we discussed issues around... Um, what might be some of the historical issues affecting Asia in in colonial times and post-colonial times, but also some of the detailed issues of trade agreements and Brexit and what it means for Britain to work with Asia, uh, including Sri Lanka, but also some of the issues that companies might face if they want to break into markets. So that was a fabulous conversation. Then I talked to the international relations people, uh, who are again a very good bunch of uh, minds that you have here, both on the theories of international relations and how small countries like Sri Lanka and others might interact in this multipolar world uh, with big powers around them. And we talked a bit about uh, some of the defence strategies that uh, might be there for emerging markets and this issue of of do you take an existing defence capability and how do you re-engineer it for a new world order Um, and and how does one go about organising that, which I found were really interesting practical insights. And um, then we had an interesting conversation with the Institute of Maritime Law uh, at Southampton where you have some really great global experts uh, talking about some of the issues of the law of the sea or UNCLOS, uh, some of the gaps such an important agreement might face and what does it mean for a small country like Sri Lanka in this new world order and how do we deal in particular with some of these non-traditional issues, piracy, um, people smuggling crime, uh, which are influencing and affecting small countries' uh, abilities to function in the future. Um, and so it's been a very productive visit to Southampton, and I've learned a lot, and I hope we will continue to engage views and ideas and explore options for collaboration in the future.
0: Excellent. And now we're here from Dr. Vignar Rajar's presentation.
1: Thank you very much, Keith. It's a real pleasure to be with you here today on this wonderful day, and thank you for coming in when you could well be outside and enjoying the sun. Um, so there's this famous book, Dancing with the Giants, uh, written in 2007 uh, by Alan Winters and Syed Youssef, and they essentially took a very critical view of the rise of China and India. Um, and they point out that never before have such economies of 2.3 billion people in total uh, grown so fast for so long. So China grew at some 9% per year during 2007 to 2000, sorry, 2000 and, uh, sorry, 1997 to 2017. Uh, India grew at some 6% a year during that same period. And China, according to Winters and Yusuf, was dubbed the biggest growth surprise of the 20th century and led to what's called the Asian century of the 21st century, the 20th century um, being that dominated by the United States. Um, and so this picture, um, which I thought you all might find kind of fun, um, is really viewed of the Chinese dragon going off into the sunset, right, and the Indian elephant, uh, slow because of all the regulation around it and cumbersome, trying to catch up. So that was the kind of picture coming out of the Winters and Yusuf type analysis. And I guess the question for all of us today is is this the reality of where we are today and what we might see going forward? So, in today's sort of talk, the world really has changed. Um, We've had the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, where the world economy almost kind of crashed, uh, but has come back since then. And as part of the comeback, the International Monetary Fund, in their April World Economic Outlook, are predicting a cyclical upswing in the world economy, um, which began in 2016, which is set to continue and become broader and stronger. Now, in the forecast of the IMF, you have this really interesting prediction that India will grow at some 8% per year in 2018-19 and China will grow at 6 or thereabouts, and this is much, much faster than advanced countries. So this kind of flips things on its head, right, the Indian elephant now changing position with the dragon, right, so this is an interesting kind of perspective. Um, So there's been a lively debate on the strategies of these two countries and there's a bunch of studies uh, done by O'Neill and others which predate the global financial crisis so they don't take into account the things that may have changed and then there's a bunch of forecasts uh, that are there, but they look very long term into the future, 2050. So the Price Waterhouse Cooper study of 2017 looks at 2050, and they predict that China will be the largest economy in the world. It will overtake the United States, um, several places ahead. India will be, I think, in sixth or seventh place. So it leads to this question of well, what then explains the position of the giants? Um, what is their outlook, and how might they interact going forward? So those are kind of the three questions that I want to try to talk about today um, and to try to question whether this Asian century is purely a China-centric view or is it something else with India and others playing suit. There's a bunch of things that you might look at uh, if you're interested and I won't go into this in any detail but the first three studies are telling you a bit of the historic story of why the giants grew um, and what explains their uh, performance. Um, the fourth is really a popular uh, account of India overtaking China, um, and then the other three are about the big trade agreement in Asia, um, and how that might influence the presence of countries like Sri Lanka, and so on. So, please select if you like, um, please ignore them if you're bored, um, the choice is yours. The first question then is, what is this performance of India and China? and what you see is this really impressive performance uh, in two graphs. So this is a long run chart of the growth rate in real terms between 1990 to 2020 of China, India and the world economy. Uh, these are the shares in the world economy and what you see is that this figure of 9% per year um, over a long period that China grew at although with the Asian financial crisis bring it down and the global financial crisis and then basically a, a slower rate. Um, India opens up later than China. China opens up in 1978, somewhere there. India opens up in 1991, grows at some six percent per year, and then the IMF thinks it'll grow faster. And you had this interesting prediction where India overtakes China in terms of its forecast rate of growth. 7.4 um, percent in 2018, 7.8 Um, So 8% growth, Uh, India has not achieved this historically, Uh, so it it is something quite special um, for India to try to achieve. And what you see really is this striking picture here of China 3% of the world economy in 1980 um, and then going to uh, 16% uh, to today, Um, India going from say 2% to 3% of the world economy, so not big change but something and then the United States um, decline. Okay. so, so it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating picture of shifts um, in what we might expect the world economy to be um, now what explained this, um, this can be found in some things I've written but there are two types of factors that I guess are interesting uh, the first is initial conditions that favour growth um, and the second is reform conditions and strategy. Um, on the initial conditions, so China is located close to Japan uh, and dynamic East Asia. So Japan in the 1970s and 80s started delocalizing its industry through something called the Plaza Accord, um, which shifted its, its production in the electronics industry to Malaysia largely, and in the auto industry to Thailand. So there was this delocalization of industry. Um, and that was a major factor along with Japanese foreign aid that helped uh, the rise of China. Um, China became the assembly hub of this type of trade. Uh, Another important factor was the the, the issue that both have large domestic markets but China's middle class is much larger than that of India um, which is a very important factor in terms of stimulating industrial growth and development. A third factor is a lot of studies that talk about China having much higher labour productivity um, and technology than India. So the Chinese productivity is something like um, a quarter of that of the United States, depending on how you measure it, Indian productivity is something like 17 or 18 percent of that. So uh, in most industries, particularly in manufacturing, China is way ahead of India, except in the IT sector, where India does very well. And then there's a bit of a controversial factor about the Communist Party in China, which has, you know, two million plus members who have a very coordinated approach to policy and also implementation. And India's equivalent is really the Indian Administrative Service, which is the traditional civil service, a smaller number of people um, and arguably less effective. Uh, So initial conditions are very important in trying to help explain the difference in growth. Another important factor is really strategy. So China opened up its economy in 1978, Uh, India opened up in 91, so there's a first mover advantage in the case of China, and China did it by opening up to uh, foreign direct investment uh, in export processing zones along the coast, giving tax holidays and a lot of infrastructure and uh, skills that were necessary also. Um, Whereas India opened up much later and the argument is that India was less coordinated and Uh, coherent in its strategy and relied much more on market forces, whereas China had a mix of market forces with a strong visible hand of the state um, including directing industries, directing infrastructure um, and if one uh, believes the United States uh, got foreign companies to transfer their technology. Uh, The famous case of the Shinkansen technology, China has this high-speed train Um, that uh, goes between Beijing and Shanghai and then there's this uh, maglev train that is between the airport in Shanghai and airport which goes at 400 kilometers an hour, Uh, one of the fastest trains in the world over a very short distance. So you get to that airport very very fast and all of this technology was uh, Chinese um, uh, state organs um, getting the foreign partner in such uh, ventures to provide their proprietary technology and so that's one example of industrial policy uh, that people talk about but there are others as well. Um, Now foreign investment levels are much higher in in China and they brought in technology as well as skills and provided marketing connections Uh, but India is gradually catching up. Um, So in a nutshell this is the basic explanation for India and China. Um, This is one of my kind of favorite pictures. Um, um, You you fast forward today and you have these two great men. Um, They Xi Jinping um, in the jacket and, Thai, and Narendra Modi uh, the Indian prime minister in the national dress um, are really underpinning the future of these now she is smiling because he's just been made president for life and he has <laughs> constitutional status uh that Mao Zedong who set up China if you believe it uh ha- enjoys right uh, Modi is frowning because he faces elections next year with the uncertainty that may come um, in April and May 2019. Now there's some interesting comparisons between these two men. Um, Modi is uh, 67 years old. Uh, she is 64 years old. So the young amongst you, you ain't going to become leader of China or India. Okay. Um, The other interesting fact is their level of education. They both have master's degrees. She is a chemical engineer uh, by training from Shingar University, which is one of the top universities in China. Uh, And he has a master's in political science, uh, sorry, in postgraduate humanities uh, master's. Uh, Narendra Modi has a a BA in arts from Delhi University, again a top university in India. And he has a, a master's in political science from Gujarat, which he later became chief minister of. So, there are some common things about them, right? Uh, older men uh, in this new era, uh, we've gone with the young leaders that we may have had in a previous era, highly educated uh, people in the top schools of their country, but one an engineer, which has a science base uh, for the push that uh, sees planning. Um, so, those common things are there, but what they really are united is their vision to want to make both of these countries very strong global uh, leaders in economic activity. And that's, They're absolutely united um, and they want to do this through economic reforms and a strong role for the state um, and they want to do global um, leadership and regional integration um, and it's a big contrast with um, that other big country, uh, the United States, that is increasingly pursuing isolationist policies and an America first approach. Um, and, and it's, it's really quite ironic, I mean, so, so you have the kinds of reforms here which you must look at at your leisure. Uh, Xi ended the one-child policy, and China ended this, uh, wants to make the RMB a global currency, so in the future we might walk around with RMB notes as we walk around with dollars and euros. Um, he also has this very ambitious Belt and Road Initiative, which is an initiative on the scale of the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe and uh, Asia after World War II. Uh, it's that scale of resources uh, that that is there Um, and they're wanting to also get rid of some of the state-owned enterprises and deepen the financial markets Uh, any of you who've been to China will see Shanghai as the new financial center in Asia which they want to create Uh, it's impressive Uh, the tallest buildings in the world they want to put there Uh, they want to put state-of-the-art technology it'll be the Hong Kong of the future but even better and on a scale that is unprecedented Um, Modi has launched a set of reforms Uh, that are trying to modernize this elephant that you saw before uh, in a very dramatic manner so he he organized a nationwide goods and services tax in India and and the states used to collect revenue for goods and services, there were national taxes and he's made a harmonized system, there was temporary disruptions for business the other thing that he did was quite dramatic, he got rid of all the large currency notes in the country, made them all illegal Um, and so you could only have the small notes and it had a um, moot impact. Jewelry mixed as to whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but he tried to get rid of black money in the economy. Massive reform. Um, he's also trying to make the fiscal side of the budget deficit more accountable, uh, make it a much more um, important uh, investment climate for business. And he created some 9 million bank accounts for the poor and put money in each bank account to try to bring anti-poverty efforts to the forefront so some amazing things for India all by the stroke of a pen and a very strong Prime Minister's office Um, and the other thing that they are in a world where the United States is retreating they're all trying to be China and India the new leaders of the global economy and there's a whole bunch of these initiatives which go from a big trade agreement across Asia to the setting up of two new development banks to actually supporting the Paris Agreement on Climate Change remarkable change. The the new powers that were considered um, inward looking and isolationist are now becoming the global leaders in what they're doing uh, while you have the United States retreating uh, in a different sense. So fascinating in terms of picture. Now the question then is with India growing faster, 8% per year uh, in the near future, the question for us is well what can India do to um, fulfill its potential and to give itself the best chance of catching up with China uh, in terms of income per head and a lot of authors talk about this demographic dividend that India enjoys. So India has um, a population, those under 24, which will increase by 20 million um, in this period to 2015 and will increase even greater in the future whereas China's equivalent population fell by 80 million. China is aging so the silver head generation which you see in East Asia as a result of your income rising you tend to be um, producing less children and your fertility rates drop uh, that problem China is facing. Okay, so there's a pension time bomb in the future and India's advantage is the youthful population, so the argument is that the youth are very dynamic they set up businesses, they will need to take more risk um, so this is one really important driver of future growth um, The other important issue is the reforms of Modi's um, which people think have created a better investment climate, but with those caveats of demonetization having a bit of a negative effect um, and so on. But the major set of things India needs to do is, is really on the supply side. Um, it, ha- it has to invest much more in s- STEM graduates, science, techni- technology, engineering, and mathematics. So India has some 2.6 million STEM graduates, where China's number is practically double that. And if you do it on a per capita basis, uh, China's number is much better. Um, Likewise, India does not spend enough on research and development compared to China and particularly in the new technology fields, artificial intelligence, robotics, biotech, miniaturization these important new technologies uh, India needs to spend more on um, and aerospace uh, which is obviously critical. And then there are the kind of classic issues where India is famous for uh, creaking infrastructure, railway gauges that don't match um, electricity brownouts which are a big problem for manufacturing um, um, uh, airports that uh, some very good ones like the New Delhi Airport uh, I think designed uh, by British architects but also um, other areas uh, that it has to improve. China's infrastructure spending is practically double uh, that of India. So these are four important things. Now if you do the numbers and I've done um, some work on this um, what would it take India or when would India possibly overcome that of China and so I tried to project long run income per head under some reasonable assumption. So for the case of um, China, we assume that China would have a soft landing over time, so its rates of growth would go to 6% uh, for the decade 2017 to 2025, 7%, um, sorry, 6%, that's right, 6% in the next decade, 2026 to 35 maybe come down to 5%, and then some 4% and less after 2035. In the Indian case, uh, 8% for the next 3-4 years, 7-6 uh, as it kind of approaches something of a middle-income trap. As these constraints in India, the bureaucratic um, hurdles that business may face, uh, the lack of STEM graduates, uh, the creaking infrastructure kick in, India could have a classic sort of middle-income trap that you've seen to face in Malaysia and Thailand, uh, which are large economies, Indonesia has a similar problem. Um, So if you assume these kinds of things, um, in current market prices, India will overtake China in 2066, in PPP, just exchange rate terms, um, this is considered a better measure, 2046. So somewhere around the middle of this century, India's per capita income could well exceed that of China. So something very different to what Alan Winters or Pranab Badran or others were talking about and this is a kind of a uh, mind-boggling storyline. But of course these forecasts are not These are these are numbers based on your best guess of the future and what you think the rates of growth would be, what inflation would be, what population would be and whether there is indeed political stability. So there's a whole bunch of risks uh, that could be there that could uh, dampen the giant's prospects and um, you know here's a bunch of things that will affect both countries right? Uh, we have the US uh, that is raising interest rates uh, as that economy is coming out of recession um, and that would mean that there will be more uh, hot money flowing away from Asia China and India included towards the United States right? so that takes um, investment out of the system uh, which can be a problem for growth another problem is trade protectionism and this is there um, increasingly with the US putting tariffs on aluminium and steel uh, particularly against China and there is tensions whether it would lead to a trade war or not we cannot predict Uh, but there are some problems in the trade sphere. Certainly there's a rise in non-tariff protection uh, that is there since the global financial crisis as people are more worried about jobs than before. We also have geopolitical tensions uh, which are worldwide, we have cyber security problems and the underlying problem is weak productivity growth in um, industrial countries but also in China and India and there's a bunch of other risks that affect China which you can see as well as India Um, and then there are these long term issues that might face India so this type of change um, may be there where India can overtake China, whether it's 2050 or later we're not sure Um, but what seems to be clear is that China's growth will go towards a soft landing and the other bit that might um, help that storyline is that uh, China has enormous reserves um, and enormous uh, surpluses that they can invest to engineer growth if they wanted to and they're the communist party that really controls many aspects of the economy as well as uh, life in China and they've had a very cautious approach to opening up so I am fairly confident that China will have a soft landing and if it ends up with 4% growth um, in the future, that's not very bad. If you think of the UK as 2% or the US 3%, uh, 4% is still pretty good. It won't be enough to um, provide jobs for all the Chinese coming out of the system and the ratios of that type, but it's not bad. And India's growth coming down to 6% in the future may well be the normal uh, for a country of that type, but catch-up is potentially there uh, amidst these types of risks. The big... Um, other question which you read in the literature is about you know, um, democracy versus autocracy, which one makes more sense and how do we uh, look at this and you have the arguments as I best try to understand them and I'm not a political scientist so I try to read other literature to try to understand what the storyline might be um, the issue is that uh, the one party autocracy in China um, has managed to get certain reforms done, and that's the kind of positive storyline. And they've created a very good uh, market friendly economy for foreign investment in particular, and they've invested in health and education, and that started even before they opened up during Don Xiaoping's time, started in communist times, right. That was one of the hallmarks of communism. And they had um, a revolution of technology and of landholding in agriculture, which also started uh, pre uh, the opening up. So poor Chinese um, enjoy better access to health and education than a poor Indian. Um, So that bit is is there for growth. But in China, when you have rising prosperity, there are these demands for democracy um, and political freedom, um, but we don't quite know where it will go in the future. Um, and the literature is divided, so they think, well, you may go through an authoritarian phase after which you might open up in a democratic transition. And they point to Korea as the case in point. Right? So that's one kind of transition we may see. Um, now, it's unclear where China would go. If it avoids this type of transition towards more democratization, it will set a president. If not, it could see disruptive changes in the future um, as uh, there is a demand for more political freedoms and more property rights. Uh, which India's democracy do not have to go through flawed democracy, of course, with lots of problems. Um, so the jury's out on this risk, but but it's certainly fascinating to watch for uh, in the generation of many of you um, to come. The third sort of topic I want to briefly touch upon um, is about frictions over China's rise, and this is about the trade frictions. And there are a couple of charts here. The first is of imports. Um, to South Asia from different parties, China, the US and EU, and China's imports have grown um, to South Asia enormously, 90, 100 billion dollars, uh, double that, sorry, more than um, both the European Union and the US combined to South Asia. So, the seven countries in South Asia, uh, China is more important um, as a source of imports. The problem of course is tensions. Uh, trade surpluses that China enjoys uh, with India which are large as well as with the rest of South Asia. Um, So that's kind of fueling some trade frictions. So here is a chart that gives you a better picture of it and if we just pick India and we look at how important China is in imports so seven percent of Indian imports in this period came from China and that number has doubled but very few Indian exports are going to China. Six percent here and then the exports have actually fallen. So this is part of the problem and you can see this Uh, China is a big supplier of uh, goods to Bangladesh uh, to Sri Lanka, 20%, 29%, so China accounts for a lot of the imports uh, which were formerly produced in Britain in the European Union um, which are now coming. We've had a bit of a backlash in India, these are non-tariff measures, so these are murky measures like phytosanitary standards, technical barriers to trade, customs regulations, import bans, you're seeing more of these things than before the crisis which I don't have data on India is imposing more of these things on China Pakistan is beginning to do this China is gradually doing some of this so trade frictions are an important challenge that we are beginning to see so one thesis I sort of have is we may reduce some of these trade frictions by thinking of trade rules and more rules based uh, trade and There is a big trade agreement that's being discussed in Asia called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that aims to create modern rules on goods, services, investment uh, to support business activity in Asia. And India is a part of this deal along with uh, all the ASEAN 10 countries, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, It's lower ambition than what used to be the US-led trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and if it's successful, it would be very nice, because it will perhaps have a number of benefits. Um, the rest of South Asia is not part of this agreement. And, and, and if it gets done in 2019, as the authors want it to be, um, open accession is a clause there, and hopefully uh, the others will get to join, including Sri Lanka. Here is a simulation I did um, from using a model-based study, a computer generator model, Uh, which has 40 sectors and and, and hundreds of equations Um, and we gave it a shock of a comprehensive trade agreement of tariff reduction, reduction in barriers to services trade and um, trade facilitation brought in and you see some of the big uh, benefits from this type of agreement Um, 260 billion dollars would be the global gains from such an agreement Uh, insiders to the agreement gain, outsiders lose and the biggest insiders that gain would be some of these East Asian countries but India will see a bump up of 2% of its GDP um, over the full implementation of this agreement the rest of South Asia which is not in this agreement potentially loses from not being there, there's trade diversion uh, there's investment that may not go because it doesn't get some of the preferences and you won't have access to that market Um, There are other things like global value chains may not relocate um, into the rest of South Asia, they'd rather go here because it provides this market of practically 3 billion people and so on. So there are static as well as dynamic gains that may be uh, very useful uh, from such a big agreement. Um, The second area of friction is the maritime domain um, which is a very interesting one and this map shows you um, the sea bit of the Belt and Road, Um, I guess the sort of maritime road as it's called Um, and you have a a sense of this that China has spent some uh, billions of dollars expanding the port network across the world to secure sea lanes particularly for the energy trade and to establish itself as a a major maritime power Um, and I want to talk a bit about this area the Indian Ocean Um, and this is one of the world's largest oceans and China is investing in Um, Gwadar port in Pakistan, uh, which is important. Um, There's a a corridor between China and Pakistan, 54 billion dollars, and the port for that is Gwadar. And they're trying to do it as a gateway port, which means there's a big manufacturing plan, um, as well as to try to uh, do transshipment. Um, Another one is Djibouti, uh, which has kind of become a base uh, for several countries, including China. And then we have Sri Lanka, um, which has a big Chinese investment in Hambantota Port in southern Sri Lanka. Uh, but this ocean increasingly uh, is the route for maritime trade through the Suez Canal, oil, uh, goods trade, etc. Increasingly important um, route forward, and that way. Okay. So that's interesting thing to focus on. Um, and here is Sri Lanka in the middle of all of that. Okay, now Sri Lanka has many stories to it. Uh, the first is in the headlines, it's about the Chinese involvement in Sri Lanka that's become very popular. Another part of the story is that it's very strategically located 22 miles from um, southern India, um, part of this Asia-Europe sea route, um, and it kind of follows this kind of non-aligned... Uh, foreign policy today, friends with everyone, enemies with no one and this is a a reversal from a foreign policy we had uh, prior to 2015, maybe from around 2008, 9 to about 2015 where we had a strong link with China. Um, It's a very open economy um, and the first reformer uh, in South Asia and has uh, low middle-income status but it had a 30-year conflict which kind of blights its development prospects and held the country back Um, As far as the Chinese story is concerned, there are two ports that China is involved. China is involved in Port of Colombo, which is the main uh, hub for Sri Lanka, and the Port of Hambantota, which um, is a new port that was uh, set up some years ago, um, and the Chinese now have a presence there. Um, Here is the Hambantota story. It's, It's a large deep water port in southern Sri Lanka, and it's on the BRI map. Um, It was built by the previous government, uh, largely as a state-owned venture with China's help. Um, Sadly it became a classic white elephant and it recorded losses since its opening in 2012. Uh, In 2015 we had a national government that renegotiated with China and was successful and we had a a landmark uh, public-private sector partnership deal in July 2017. So China Merchant Ports, um, huge state enterprise, I believe it's the largest multinational uh, of China. It's headquartered in Hong Kong It uh, has ports in Darwin, in the United States also and elsewhere. It's, it's, it's really their biggest company I understand. It agreed to pay 1.12 billion for a 70% stake in the port as a joint venture with the Ports Authority on a 99 year lease. That money has come into the central bank. Um, on the economic side this deal provides for rick sharing uh, on the port project and reduces the debt burden for Sri Lanka which is going to be a problem for us. 25% of, our foreign, uh, of export earnings goes into debt repayments, really, not just to China but largely to the multilateral development banks in Japan. Um, but having this deal strengthens our reserves. Um, and the Chinese plan is really to have a port that uh, will help link to East Asia, Europe and Africa and then the larger plan is for investment into an adjoining industrial zone and they're trying to do some very interesting things in that zone which we can come to in the chat there has been some concerns historically that uh, the geopolitical issues will be a problem and India has expressed concerns about that part of the deal was that foreign navy visits would be regulated by the Sri Lankan navy so Sri Lanka would have control over such trade um, and also by port visits Um, now of course these conditions Um, have led to growing um, worries in India that could uh, lead to some sort of strategic realignment with China, with Sri Lanka and could upset the balance of power in the Indian Ocean. And India's responses, you see this on the slide, um, India opened up a consulate in uh, Hambantota, there was a visit by Chinese submarines that led to an official Indian protest. And then this is the most telling. Of the 400 port visits to Sri Lanka, Uh, since 2009, um, Indian ships made 21% of those visits, so that's a really telling thing. This was Andrew what I was sort of talking about uh, some of the things when we were chatting earlier. Um, I feel that this view uh, of a Chinese strategically alignment in Sri Lanka is a bit over pessimistic because of several um, important issues. Today the Sri Lankan economy is still very aligned with the West. 50% of trade is with uh, Western countries, most of the debt is still with the IFIs, World Bank, the IMF, the Asian Development Bank, China is an additional engine for Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has this um, non-aligned foreign policy, control its, its security and tries to maintain strong political ties. And the Chinese have sort of said that they want to be a responsible development partner and are following good standard practices such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank where they are trying to take on board environment and uh, resettlement policies practiced by the World Bank and, and the Asian Development Bank. So in the short run or the medium run one expects the current scenario to be there but Chinese presence will probably increase and then down the track there may be some challenges. But, but. For the short run, I think the pessimistic views um, perhaps not borne out. Um, part of this challenge, um, I guess, is how the Indian Ocean is 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 governed, and there is a sense of people who work on maritime law that this ocean is becoming an ungoverned space increasingly, um, and there are some worries about what they call non-traditional security threats, things like piracy, uh, particularly in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, there's piracy issues, there's crime, there's drug smuggling uh, that is there, there's smuggling of gold uh, very recently between Sri Lanka and India there's differences in gold prices Um, unregulated and illegal fishing is a problem uh, for many countries including Indian vessels that come into our waters there's this risk of illegal uh, migration and one is worried about the Rohingya migration issues uh, which may be there and there's climate change risks uh, that people worry about Uh, some of the sea level rises will affect Bits of Sri Lanka, um, and then we have a sort of an arms race in the Indian Ocean, and, and one is worried about, uh, you know, this U.S. Uh, expecting India to be a net security provider in the Indian Ocean, and that's a question mark uh, area for us. And then there are suggestions by international lawyers that UNCLOS, the Law of the Sea, um, exists, but some aspects may not be effective uh, and need updating, but reforming this is a big undertaking. Uh, but all of these issues are a potential problem to Sri Lanka's ambition to want to become a maritime hub and some kind of global leader um, in the um, Indian Ocean's uh, prosperity in the future and its commerce could be affected. So we think that there's probably an important need for improved diplomacy and Indian Ocean commerce and as part of this I guess there's an assessment ongoing um, in the region about how do we try to address this and is this some sort of voluntary exercise that seems important, Um, some people are talking about uh, a code of conduct, other people are talking about uh, something a little stronger, other people are saying something weaker at least get people together in a conference to begin to understand these issues and recognize there are some common problems, so this is where the storyline is. Um, So in conclusion the rise of the giants I think particularly that of China is explained by a combination of initial conditions and reform strategies Um, and China really has this very strong uh, approach uh, which um, has been there for some decades and is unprecedented but both will support global recovery but the new story is probably that of India uh, with the switch of its places in global growth. Um, We have this prediction based on current performance as best as we can imagine it and assuming a soft landing for China and a middle-income trap for India at some point uh, after 2025 uh, that India could well overtake China in terms of per capita income either in current market prices or in PPP terms by the middle of the century. Many caveats of course around that internal issues within India and China as well as um, global economic issues, the future is difficult to predict uh, but this kind of scenario building is very useful from a planning purpose uh, perspective um, and then with this rise of India we have more tensions that are occurring today uh, in the Indian Ocean. Um, There are trade imbalances uh, with China, there's port investments and the issues around that uh, with FDI presence plus naval presence. And so to help mitigate some of these things we need India and China to continue with their economic reforms, uh, but also look to continue the kind of economic cooperation that they had begun to do, particularly in the era where we have a world economy that is very fragile but also looking at some exercises around regional rules on trade and a big trade agreement, but also um, improving the maritime order. And I think with these things, we could expect a reasonable future in South Asia and beyond. Thank you very much.
0: So there we have it. Sri Lanka assessing the opportunities and challenges of balancing giants in the Indian Ocean. Many thanks to my very special guest, Dr. Ganeshin Vegnarara from LKI. And thanks to our awesome producer, Aaron, who has worked tirelessly over the last few months to bring together these podcasts. As ever, slides are available in the show notes. Previous editions are available via SoundCloud. And, you know, rate us, recommend us to your friends, recommend us to strangers, just recommend us to somebody. If you have suggestions for topics for future pods, feel free to drop us a line via public policy or one word, at southampton.ac.uk. That's public policy at southampton.ac.uk. Until next time... Goodbye.